0: This podcast is brought to you by Exergo Technologies, providing some of the most affordable and portable sports science technology on the market. Made by coaches for coaches. Stop guessing. Start assessing. Produced from the Cube Studios, this is Strong by Science. In-depth conversations about science-based training, sports performance, and all things health and wellness. Here's your host, Max Schmarzo. What's up, guys? How are we doing today? Uh, thank you for tuning in. Today we're talking about rate of force development and concentric-only movements. So rate of force development is how fast you can produce force, right? So the rate of your, your force production. What's interesting, though, is that every time we run, we jump, we move. Let's say we're having a cyclic movement, so we're running. And each step, we hit the ground, And when we hit the ground, our muscles have to generate force from a non-loaded position, right? So we don't have – in the air floating to immediately producing force and redirect that movement. So, again, every time we step, we have a new rate of force development or another opportunity to have a rate of force development when we hit the ground. So that's, again, rate of force development and dynamic movement. In a traditional movement, though, when we talk about rate of force development – Let's say we're squatting and we have the bar on our back. We squat down and come back up. Well, our body is already loaded with the bar when we eccentrically load. So if we think about running, right? Every time you're in the air, you hit the ground again. Well, when you're in the air, you don't have a load. Obviously, you have momentum, but you don't have a physical load that's pre-tensing the muscles. However, when you are doing a squat, the bar is on your back, your um, lower extremities and your low back, whatever, your muscles are pre-tensed, meaning that they have already produced enough force to hold that bar statically on your back. Then you lower eccentrically, where you also then have right the muscles tensed, and then you produce a concentric force to stand back up. So what happens is, in a movement that's coupled in all three eccentric, isometric, and concentric, right? We that rate of force development, we don't really have that opportunity to develop it because we already have the muscles tensed from the bar in our back. However, this is where concentric only movements come into play. Think about a concentric only movement, like um, a rack pull, for example. Well, when you pull from the rack, you go from a non-tensed, non-loaded movement to a fully tensed movement, and you go from complete relaxation, unloaded, right, to now you're pulling against you know whatever weight you have on the rack pull, and then that is forcing us to. to develop a rate of force because that is the first time we're initiating that force production on that bar to produce a concentric movement. So when we do these concentric movements, it's one of the only ways in which we can, or concentric or isometric that we can have, um, train the initial start or the initial rate of force development in a concentric manner. So that rate of force out as we're going up, right? Obviously, there's rate of force development for eccentric, which is why you might want to do certain movements in a certain way. You might want to, you know, incorporate higher velocity eccentrics. But from a concentric rate of force development, and I should have gave that caveat before I started talking, from a concentric standpoint, it is that initial, you know, out of the hold explosion. And so what happens is, if we start thinking about how can I optimize training this eccentric, sorry, this um, rate of force development concentrically, then we start looking at oscillatory movements. Right? Where it's a small range of motion, think about maybe going one to three inches um, in total range, and we're basically going the bar up, exploding up, and it's going to relax and come back down to that position again, explode back up and come back down. So instead of doing one full rep, you might do oscillations at a certain height. And what happens is as you're oscillating, now you're forcing the system to have a rate of force development um Just training that one portion of rate of force development over and over and over and over again because you have – it's like all these mini concentric pushes. And that same thing you can apply for isometrics like pull, relax, pull, relax, pull, relax. And now you're training that rate of force development on the initial concentric movement. Now, I'll throw the caveat in here too, right? If we're looking at just general rate of force development, then we have certain drop catch exercises that we might do with a bar, um, jumping off of a box, landing – that are the eccentric rate of force development aspects. So this is the rapid eccentric decelerating either with momentum, um, decelerating the momentum of an object or, you know, transitioning the load if it's a heavy squat. But think about the high, like rapid, again, when you're squatting, right, you have that eccentric tension all the way through. And so, but if you're like a high rapid velocity plyometric, you only have that eccentric tension once you hit the ground. Or let's say you're doing a catching, um, you know, jumping off a box or you're doing, some sort of a med ball catch or a uh, partner kettlebell passing um, or even some sort of a kettlebell drop catch. Right, It's that eccentric, boom, quick muscle turn on rapidly. We develop that force right away to decelerate and stop our momentum. And you can do this through different other exercises as well, not just catches, but you can do like the hamstring catches off of a GHR, things of that nature too. But the idea is in rate of force development, you want to find a way essentially to go from a uh, a a non pre tensed state to a tensed state. And again, when maybe these traditional movements, they do play a role in rate of force development, by the way. Not to say, like, oh, you don't get a rate of force development with the squad. You know, maximal strength plays a huge role with rate of force development. Um, you could argue because it's maybe um, not percentage based, but so it's magnitude based. But regardless, right, it plays a role in it. But to get more specific with it, that's where you do those drop catch movements. That's where you do some of those. Um, you know, oscillatory movements. It's focused on, on that initial contraction over and over and over again. And then that's developing the continuous cycle, right? Of, not cycle, with a continuous presence of that specific stimulus. What I mean by that, think about traditional bench press one last time. Down, up, nice and slow, right? And it might take, you know, one second to do one rep as opposed to now you have that bar just above your chest and you're doing oscillatory movements up and down, up and down, up and down. And you might get five reps in a second, or maybe you know, three reps. The idea is, now per unit of time under tension, you have now trained, or time under tension, at the time you're doing the movement, you've now trained that initial stimulus of rate of force development four to five more times than you could otherwise. And so that's kind of where I mean by, uh, you know, you're know you getting more opportunities to produce rate of force development per unit or per second that you're actually performing the lift. All right, today, guys, I'm talking a little bit about what it actually means to have you know, a fluid, an agile, a personalized, an auto-regulatory form of periodization. And how it's really a lot simpler than what it sounds. So in nature, or by nature, the term agile fluid kind of brings about the context of non-determined. Right? We have an outline, but we don't necessarily have a specific, you know, regimented plan we have to follow. And so what I mean by that is, in an agile or fluid model, we have guidelines. You have... Um, the ability to adjust what you need when you need to adjust it, but you're not regimented to having to do that workout for that day. So the idea of this is to now bring more context and specificity in terms of the train itself to fit into how you actually feel and how you're going to perform. So what I mean by that is even sorts of um, methods like using RPE, so rate of perceived exertion, is a form of agile fluid you know, periodization because in nature... RPE is a subjective metric, meaning how you feel determines how much weight you're going to lift. And so by that definition alone, it's going to be adjusting day to day depending on how you feel and whether or not um, you're feeling the ability to push a little bit further or pull back. The human body is really good at knowing a lot about yourself, and so under the constraints or guidelines of a general program, having the ability to fluidly manipulate the variables within it—you know, the intensity, the volume, the number of jumps you do, number of lifts you do—to fit the need for you that day makes a lot of sense. And I think what happens is we kind of get this big picture concept of, oh, um, you know, I'm gonna plan now three months of my training cycle, and every day is gonna be X, Y, and Z. And that's that's excellent, and that gives you a lot of guideline, a lot of direction, but it's not going to specifically take into account how you feel day to day. And what I mean by that, I think the term is used like a periodization model, where you plan out three months. It's kind of like a map, like a map quest from those old things you used to get where it told you to take left here, go right here. But really, fluid periodization is much more like a GPS or a ways which is a type of, uh, it's an app, like a GPS, that adjusts to the current nature of traffic itself. So yes, you're still going from point A to point B, but in one form, you have to follow this A, B, C, D kind of model. And the other one is, oh, if I need to make adjustment, take a detour, we got, uh, you know, a car accident ahead of us, we have, you know, road work being done, well, we need to take a detour, well, in my life, if I have... Uh, I don't sleep well the night before, I have more stress than I care for, I have something going on that's not allowing me to maybe be the best I can before that day. Well, that's fine, and let's adjust, and let's fit in what we need for what you can do. And so you're still going from point A to point B, but you're adjusting based on some of those um, you know, subjective feelings. And this is where collecting some objective measurement can really help. So maybe your goal is to be ready to train for power development, and so you're going to use jump height as a means of readiness testing. And so if you jump a certain height and it's less than you expected because you're fatigued maybe from the previous squat session a couple days ago, just general life or whatever is causing you to be um, a little bit down, well, then you can adjust. You say, okay, I'm not doing my power session today. My legs are torched. I'm going to adjust and maybe do a light aerobic active recovery day, which I had planned to do two days later, but apparently I need it now so I can be ready to do Um, my power day in the upcoming days. And so now you're being agile, you're being fluid, and you're making adjustments based on information. So it's not just like arbitrary. Oh, today I want to do this because that's fluid or that's agile. Um, No, it's more like, okay, based on the information I've collected, I should probably do this instead. I feel that I need to do this. I'll get better results. And based on some information like jump height, hand grip score, even a subjective questionnaire of how well you slept and what your energy level is today, then maybe you can say, "Okay, wonderful. Now I know where I'm at today. I know what's best for me because I'm trained and skilled at lifting. I've been, you know, myself for X number of years in the weight room. I can adjust that model." And so we still have those constraints and guidelines of I want to get my goal and achieve those goals, but now we're fluid and agile to fit the context for that day because all we care about are aggregated gains. We want to make small gains every day. And sometimes taking, um, not not taking a step back, but not taking a step forward is going to save you down the road because sometimes that one step forward to achieve that day that's really difficult that you're not ready for is just a, such a large taxation on your body that you're not going to... Um, maybe recuperate in the way, and it throws your whole program off. And so that's where the whole you know, kind of monolithic periodization model struggles at times is because what happens if we do have a bad day? Well, having the agile adjustments with the ability to have some changes based on your own needs and your own context for yourself allows you to manipulate the variables to best fit yourself. So when we talk about agile, fluid, you know, auto-regulation, individualized, whatever you want to call it, type of training, it's all about understanding how you feel, based on maybe some subjective and objective metrics, and then deciding whether or not you want to then move on forward with a certain workout for that day or make an adjustment or you know be agile, be fluid in your periodization and pick something else that fits in better with the picture. I got a question recently about what's the best way I can learn? And I think it's kind of a funny topic because um, I'm going to rant and not really answer the question. I'm sorry. The best, First off, the best way to learn is to read. Take your time to understand, apply the information, get enough sleep, Take you know. be fed, don't overwork yourself, and continually um, take time at it. That's the simple answer. But on top of that, I think learning sucks. Learning is very, very humbling. And so what I mean by that is in order to learn, by definition, you are understanding something that you did not understand before. And so when you learn... You now are accepting the fact that you did not know. In order to learn, then you have to admit that you don't know. And so learning itself is this very humbling process. It's a process of constantly understanding that you don't understand anything at all. And so learning is empowering at that same time because now you have learned something that other people's other people's, other people might not understand. And so it's this weird uh, paradigm where in order to learn, you have to understand, but in order to learn, you have to understand, you don't understand first. And so it's that process that I don't understand and I don't know, which initiates the learning cycle. And when people or anybody at all gets in the, you know, the, uh, the mindset that, oh, you know, I I know, I know this already, I don't need to learn this, I already understand this, then you're not going to give you the opportunity to learn more information that you probably don't know. So under the acceptance of I know, you also say I don't need to learn because by definition, if you know, you don't need to learn. But actually, you say I know, but you don't really know the information. You have falsified, you have, you know, Convince yourself um, falsely that you do know the information, therefore, you don't need to learn. So, by nature, learning is this very humbling ordeal. It's this ordeal that we take some interpersonal re- reflection sometimes. You look at it you go, man, I don't understand that. Maybe and when you say that, I don't understand that, that gives you the opportunity to learn. So if you're reading a paper and you come across something that you did not know before and you go, oh, wow, that's interesting. I didn't understand that, but now I do. Well, now that opens the door to say, okay, I understand this portion of it, but I don't understand this portion of it. And so now you begin to have that cycle of I don't understand, but it's under the intent that I am going to try and understand, right? It's not I don't understand also, by the way, It's not I don't understand, then I'm going to know. It's I don't understand, I'm going to do my best to try and learn the most information out there because essentially we don't really know anything that definitively. We have a lot, a lot of things that are up in the air, huge debates. And so when you start thinking about the learning process, first and foremost, think about what you think you know already. Think about, oh, I know this. And then think about why you know it. Did someone tell you it? Did you hear it at a lecture? Did you read it in a book? Okay, well, that is a sentence that's a bit of information that you don't even know the context in which it came from. So why don't you do your best and try and find some of the groundwork, some of the original research on it to help... Lay the foundation from which you can build your knowledge upon because if we go into the standpoint of, oh, I know this because someone told me that. Well, then we're playing telephone. We're trusting one person, one person, one person who that original person might not have ever known anything at all. They might have made it up or it might have been taken on a context what that person initially said. And so while listening to people is wonderful, um, I'm like almost like an anti-advocate for myself, right? Go and listen to them but then say, okay, I don't understand that portion or I don't believe that person. I want to go learn more. When I worked with uh, students in my uh, graduate school, um, when I was being a TA, I always told them, don't listen to me. Don't believe me. Well, listen to me, but don't believe me. I want you to prove me wrong. I want you to find the information yourself. I want you to understand to the level that you feel comfortable to defend yourself or even agree with me based on that. But to say, oh, Max said this, so we believe this, doesn't make any sense at all. Max said this. I don't know if this is right or wrong. He's given me some starting point to dive into. I can dive into the information and formulate my own bit of information. But again, it takes the process of having to humble yourself, right? How can I admit that I don't know? And once you admit you don't know, then you realize learning sucks. And learning sucks, but it's also very empowering because you don't know, and it's unfortunate that you thought you spent the time knowing this, which is, again, maybe time that you could spend trying to learn it. But now that you've admitted that you don't know, you have that humbling experience to say, I don't know this information, then you can go and look for it yourself and best apply the information that you find. I get this question a ton. It's what book should I read? What's the best book for strength and conditioning? And so the way I look at it, first and foremost, um, is don't think about only books for strength and conditioning. I think I talked about this topic earlier, but – Think about books that help you learn and then how you can apply that to strength and conditioning. And so what I mean by that is if you only think about strength and conditioning books, you're only going to learn about this specific pillar of information that you can obviously dive deep into. But the interconnectivity between different domains will never be there because you're not diving into it. And so what I, I encourage actually is I encourage people to read a business book. I like The Lean Startup. Um, creative confidence, Fine. look at business books because what businesses have to do is they have to pull from all different domains in the world because what happens, they're dealing with humans and humans are in like different things. So if I'm trying to sell someone, you know, a phone, well, I need to, you know, reach an audience that likes this, that likes this, that likes this, that likes this. That likes this. It's not like a strength coach where maybe you're only working with a specific group of athletes in a specific sport. Yes. All those people are different, but essentially they're going to go through the same program because they're, you know, they're under a certain umbrella for that sport. When the business world, they have to say, okay, how do I learn about this? How do I learn about that? And how do I apply it to my model in regards to marketing? And so we think about marketing instead of marketing in terms of like, oh, are customers buying my stuff? Well, think about athletes and are athletes getting the progress that they want. And so when you start to look at different domains, especially the business world, which, again, I encourage people to dive into because I think they do this best and write about it best, it's how do I pull from different domains to then leverage that in my position. And so when you start to look at strength and conditioning books, strength and conditioning books are wonderful. I read them all the time. I like them. Uh, there's a lot of great books out there. Find a book you like on science and practice of strength training by Vladimir Zatorsky. It's a great book, um, easy to read and fun to understand, and you'll dive into it, and it'll be a good starting point for a lot of people. But maybe there's things outside of that book and the business side that it didn't cover. Not necessarily business from how do I make money, but businesses from how do I interconnect into different departments. So not just a business, but you read really different books from different fields of, of information so you can begin to understand how they think. And maybe there's a method of thinking in there that you can then take and leverage it into your environment. Because as we see, um, a great example would be like, uh, there's an example of this one toad that was introduced in Australia. And this one toad was supposed to eat these certain bugs, I think. And it was introduced in Australia. All of a sudden, it ate all the bugs, but it had no predator because now there was no ecosystem that had a predator. Well, they took this, you know, not necessarily top of the food chain toad and put it in Australia. Now it's top of the food chain. So maybe there's something out there that's not considered top of the food chain in a different, um, you know, uh, kind of domain of thinking, a different area, uh, a different industry, and you take that bit And you say, okay, look, I put it in my environment. Now that becomes top of the food chain because based on the environment itself, that specific um, information is going to hold different weight and different value. And so when we look across different domains, you have the opportunity to find different ways to help optimize your training. And maybe we're missing a top predator out there in terms of information we can apply to ourselves that we aren't thinking about because we're only looking at the strength conditioning realm as opposed to expanding our different domains. So when it comes to what book you should read, I think you should read books you like and read different books. That's my short answer to it all. And hopefully – I know I get a little fired up about it because I think we miss a big opportunity at times. Today I'm talking about post-activation potentiation, um, rest intervals, and you know, optimizing power development, but fitting it for yourself. And so a recent study came out and I looked at post-activation potentiation, which is, by the way, the phenomenon when you do an exercise before another movement, it potentiates, it facilitates, it makes that movement better. So an example is I squat. I rest X amount of time, and then I jump Well, that squatting helps my jump. And so in post-activation potentiation, there's a lot of debate as to why it works, how it works, Um, and, and actually a recent study came out, and it showed that individuals had individual responses to post-activation potentiation. Well, this makes sense because I think just about everything we do is individualized because it's all based on cellular responses that take place in the human body and not everyone's cellular environment is exactly the same. And so what they actually found was that there's a much wider range than we expected in regards to how long should I wait in between sets and reps before I do my set. Um, so before Sorry, before I do my... Uh, potentiating movement and so let me take a step back and break that down so traditionally we talk about post activation potentiation and someone doing a like a squatting movement or a uh, um, you know a deadlift and they might rest about and the recommendations like 80 to 90 percent of your one rm for that movement <clears throat> and then you rest about like three to five minutes well, I've noticed personally myself that I respond much differently based on the exercise itself too. And so when I do a heavy movement that's a concentric and, e- sorry, an eccentric and concentric portion of a movement, like a squat, I need to wait much longer in order for that movement to facilitate my jump. So how long do I rest after my squat? Well, a lot longer than I would otherwise if I did a different movement. And so what I think about that, is I think it has a lot to do with time under tension as well. So if someone's taller, right, that movement takes place a little bit longer. Um, if they do an eccentric to concentric, right, you obviously have the eccentric portion to concentric, but if you just do a deadlift, you just have the lift off the floor. And I've noticed that the less time under tension I have, the shorter that rest interval needs to be with the shortest being something like an isometric where I just pull into something and I'm not moving anywhere, not having any fascicle length change in my muscle. And so one I believe there's a study, I don't, don't quote me on it, I don't know the name of the study at the top of my head that looked at post-activation potentiation and it said basically when people felt like they were ready they were most ready. And so we're really good at knowing a lot about ourselves. And so when you empower the individual to say, okay, I want you to jump or run. Um, I want you to do this, you know, the the potentiated movement when you feel most explosive. And then also maybe picking exercises that they feel make them more explosive might be beneficial as well. If someone doesn't have the neuro um, mechanical connection with a squat to a jump and they don't associate the two movements as one of the same, then maybe... That potentiation effect is being minimized or not necessarily not optimized because they don't associate it with that movement. Well, maybe doing a jump um, or a deadlift or a kettlebell um, jump. Sorry, or, sorry. Uh, tr- forget my words. A trap bar deadlift. Thank you. Because um, which is maybe people associate that with a jump a little more because of the position and the higher start. Maybe that works better. And so it's not just about the rest interval, the rest period. And the fact that's it's individual is so a possibility that there's an individual response to different exercises based on how the individual has trained with that exercise in the past, how they perceive that exercise. Um, do they feel like it makes them explosive? And then maybe there's also individual response in regards to, um, you know, do I do something heavier? Do I do something more explosive? Do I do something, you know, band assisted even? And all these have different outputs and different inputs to the body, which cause different outputs when we do the potentiating movement. But what I'm thinking about is how can you set up an environment so you learn best? Well, all you have to do is begin to test a couple of individuals and say, okay, look, um, today we're going to do a heavy squat day, and then everyone's going to do their jump, or not say heavy squat, but a heavy squat potentiating movement. Everyone's going to do their jump. Awesome. Here are all the jump heights. Then we're going to do an explosive day and maybe a band assisted day and just pick three different days. If you're doing over three weeks, just pick three different priming movements, which is that movement you do before you do the main, you know, the jump or whatever, the movement that's supposed to potentiate it. Pick three different priming movements. Measure your jump height and see how people respond. Give people maybe the opportunity to say, oh, I felt best with this one or I liked that one better. So now you've exposed them to different kind of environments and they can self-regulate better to understand, okay, this kind of movement is best for me. And when I rest this amount of time, I tend to perform the best. And so it's not necessarily about following these tight constraints to say, okay, here's my guideline, here's my rules. How can I put my individual that I'm working with in an environment where they can best Um, understand what we're trying to accomplish so then they can begin to optimize how they perform based on their own internal feedback because as a human being they're probably going to know a little bit better than what we can know especially if we empower them with objective measures like jump height so again post activation potentiation seems to be very individualized on many different levels rest intervals um the loads the movements and uh Within that, how can you set a model to actually start to learn from those individual athletes and help optimize what they have? Appreciate you guys listening, and hopefully that uh, makes a little sense. And keep the questions coming. Thank you.